Section 20 of Italian Hours by Henry James. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. The After Season in Rome. One may, at the blessed end of May, say, without injustice to anybody, that the state of mind of many a fostiero in Rome is one of intense impatience for the moment when all other fostieri shall have taken themselves off. One may confess to this state of mind and be no misanthrope. The place has passed so completely for the winter months into the hands of the barbarians that that estimable character, the passionate pilgrim, finds it constantly harder to keep his passion clear. He has a rueful sense of impressions perverted and adulterated. The all-venerable visage disconcerts us by a vain eagerness to see itself mirrored in English, American, German eyes. It isn't simply that you are never first or never alone at the classical historic spots where you have dreamt of persuading the shy genius Loki into confidential utterance. It isn't simply that St. Peter's, the Vatican, the Palatine are forever ringing with the false note of the languages without style. It is the general oppressive feeling that the city of the soul has become for the time a monstrous mixture of watering-place and curiosity-shop, and that its most ardent life is that of the tourists who haggle over false intaglios and yawn through palaces and temples. But you are told of a happy time when these abuses begin to pass away, when Rome becomes Rome again, and you may have her all to yourself. You may like her more or less now, I was assured at the height of the season, but you must wait till the month of May, when she'll give you all she has to love her. Then the foreigners, or the excess of them, are gone. The galleries and ruins are empty, and the place, said my informant, who was a happy Frenchman of the Académie de France, René à elle-même. Indeed, I was haunted all winter by an irresistible prevision of what Rome must be in declared spring. Certain charming places seemed to murmur, Ah, this is nothing. Come back at the right weeks and see the sky above us almost black with its excessive blue, and the new grass already deep, but still vivid, and the white roses tumbled in odorous spray, and the warm, radiant air distilled gold for the smelting pot that the genius Loki then dips his brush into, before making play with it in his inimitable way for the general effect of complexion. A month ago I spent a week in the country, and on my return, the first time I approached the Corso, became conscious of a change. Something delightful had happened, to which at first I couldn't give a name, but which presently shone out as the fact that there were but half as many people present, and that these were chiefly the natural or the naturalised. We had been docked of half our irrelevance, our motley excess and now physically, morally, aesthetically, there was elbow room. 
In the afternoon I went to the Pincio, and the Pincio was almost dull. The band was playing to a dozen ladies who lay in landaus, poising their lace-fringed parasols, but they had scarce more than a light, gloved dandy apiece hanging over their carriage doors. By the parapet to the great terrace that sweeps the city stood but three or four interlopers looking at the sunset, and with their bidecks only just showing in their pockets, the sunsets not being down among the tariffed articles in these precious volumes. I went so far as to hope for them that, like myself, they were under every precaution, taking some amorous intellectual liberty with the scene. Practically, I violate thus the instinct of monopoly, since it's a shame not to publish that Rome in May is indeed exquisitely worth your patience. I have just been so gratified at finding myself in undisturbed possession for a couple of hours of the Museum of the Lateran that I can afford to be magnanimous. It's almost as if the old all-papal paradise had come back. The weather for a month has been perfect, the sky an extravagance of blue, the air lively enough, the nights cool, nippingly cool, and the whole ancient greyness lighted with an irresistible smile. Rome, which in some moods, especially to newcomers, seems a place of almost sinister gloom, has an occasional art, as one knows her better, of brushing away care by the grand gesture with which some splendid, impatient mourning matron, just the niobe of nations, surviving, emerging, and looking about her again, might pull off and cast aside an oppression of muffling crepe. This admirable power, still temperamentally to react and take notice, lurks in all her darkness and dirt and decay, as something more careless and hopeless than our thrifty northern cheer, and yet more genial and urbane than the Parisian spirit of blug. The collective Roman nature is a healthy and hardy one, and you feel it abroad in the streets, even when the Sirocco blows and the medium of life seems to proceed, more or less, from the mouth of a furnace. But who shall analyse even the simplest Roman impression? It is compounded of so many things. It says so much. It involves so much. It so quickens the intelligence and so flatters the heart that before we fairly grasp the case, the imagination has marked it for her own and exposed us to a perilous likelihood of talking nonsense about it. The smile of Rome, as I've called it, and its insidious message to those who are inclined to ramble irresponsibly and take things as they come, is ushered in with the first breath of spring, and then grows and grows with the advancing season till it wraps the whole place in its tenfold charm. As the process develops, you can do few better things than go often to the Villa Borghese and sit on the grass on a stout bit of drapery and watch its exquisite stages. It has a frankness and a sweetness beyond any relenting of our clumsy climates, even when ours leave off their damnable faces and begin. 
Nature departs from every reserve with a confidence that leaves one at a loss where, as it were, to look. Leaves one, as I say, nothing to do but to lay one's head among the anemones at the base of a high-stemmed pine and gaze up crestward and skyward along its slanting silvery column. You may watch the whole business from a dozen of these choice standpoints and have a different villa for it every day of the week. The Doria, the Ludovisi, the Medici, the Albani, the Wolkonski, the Chigi, the Medini, the Massimo. There are more of them, with all their sights, sounds and odours and memories than you have senses for. But I prefer none of them to the Borghese, which is free to all the world at all times, and yet never crowded. For when the whirl of carriages is great in the middle regions, you may find a hundred untrodden spots and silent corners, tenanted at the worst, by a group of those long-skirted young propagandists, who stalk about with solemn angularity, each with a book under his arm, like silhouettes from a medieval missal, and compose so extremely well with the still more processional cypresses, and with stretches of golden russet wall overtopped by ultramarine. And yet, if the Borghese is good, the Medici is strangely charming, and you may stand in the little belvedere which rises, with such surprising oddity, out of the dusky hut of the boschetto at the latter establishment, a miniature presentation of the wood of the sleeping beauty, and look across at the Ludovisi pines, lifting their crooked parasols into the sky of what a painter would call the most morbid blue, and declare that the place where they grow is the most delightful in the world. Villa Ludovisi has been all winter the residence of the lady familiarly known in Roman society as Rosina, Victor Emmanuel's morganatic wife, the only familiarity it would seem that she allows, for the grounds were rigidly closed to the inconsolable regret of old Roman sojourners. Just as the nightingales began to sing, however, the quasi august padrona departed, and the public, with certain restrictions, had been admitted to hear them. The place takes, where it lies, a princely ease, and there could be no better example of the expansive tendencies of ancient privilege than the fact that its whole vast extent is contained by the city walls. It has in this respect very much the same enviable air of having got up early that marks the great intramural domain of Magdalen College at Oxford. The stern old ramparts of Rome form the outer enclosure of the villa, and hence a series of striking scenic effects, which it would be unscrupulous flattery to say you can imagine. The grounds are laid out in the formal last-century manner, but nowhere do the straight black cypresses lead off the gaze into vistas of a melancholy more charged with associations, poetic, romantic, historic. Nowhere are there grander, smoother walls of laurel and myrtle. I recently spent an afternoon hour at the little Protestant cemetery close to St Paul's Gate, 
where the ancient and the modern worlds are insidiously contrasted. They make between them one of the solemn places of Rome, though indeed when funereal things are so interfused, it seems ungrateful to call them sad. Here is a mixture of tears and smiles, of stones and flowers, of morning cypresses and radiant sky. It gives the impression of our looking back at death from the brighter side of the grave. The cemetery nestles in an angle of the city wall, and the older graves are sheltered by a mass of ancient brickwork, through whose narrow loopholes you peep at the wide purple of the Campania. Shelley's grave is here, buried in roses, a happy grave every way for the very type and figure of the poet. Nothing could be more impenetrably tranquil than this little corner in the bend of the protecting rampart, where a cluster of modern ashes is held tenderly in the rugged hand of the past. The past is tremendously embodied in the hoary pyramid of Caius Cestius, which rises hard by, half within the wall and half without, cutting solidly into the solid blue of the sky and casting its pagan shadow upon the grass of English graves, that of Keats among them, with the effect of poetic justice. It is a wonderful confusion of mortality and a grim enough admonition of our helpless promiscuity in the crucible of time. But the most touching element of all is the appeal of the pious English inscriptions among all these Roman memories, touching because of the universal expression of that trouble within trouble, misfortune in a foreign land. Something special stirs the heart through the fine scriptural language in which everything is recorded, the echoes of massive Latinity with which the atmosphere is charged suggest nothing more majestic and monumental. I may seem unduly to refine, but the injunction to the reader in the monument of Miss Bathurst, drowned in the Tiber in 1824, quote, If thou art young and lovely, build not thereon, for she who lies beneath thy feet in death was the loveliest flower ever cropped in its bloom. End quote. Affects us irresistibly as a case for tears on the spot. The whole elaborate inscription, indeed, says something over and beyond all that it does say. The English have the reputation of being the most reticent people in the world, and as there is no smoke without fire, I suppose they have done something to deserve it. Yet who can say that one doesn't constantly meet the most startling examples of the insular faculty to gush? In this instance, the mother of the deceased takes the public into her confidence with surprising frankness and omits no detail, seizing the opportunity to mention, by the way, that she had already lost her husband by a most mysterious visitation. The appeal to one's attention and the confidence in it are withal most moving. The whole record has an old-fashioned gentility that makes its frankness tragic. You seem to hear the garrulity of passionate grief, 
to be choosing these positive commonplaces of the roman tone for a theme when there are matters of modern moment going on may seem none the less to require an apology but i make no claim to your special correspondence faculty for getting an inside view of things and i have hardly more than a pictorial impression of the pope's illness and of the discussion of the law of the convents indeed i am afraid to speak of the pope's illness at all lest i should say something egregiously heartless about it recalling too forcibly that unnatural husband who was heard to wish that his wife would either get well he had his reasons and roman tourists have theirs in the shape of a vague longing for something spectacular at st peter's if it takes the sacrifice of somebody to produce it let somebody then be sacrificed meanwhile we have been having a glimpse of the spectacular side of the religious corporations bill hearing one morning a great hubbub in the corso i stepped forth upon my balcony a couple of hundred men were strolling slowly down the street with their hands in their pockets shouting in unison abbasso il ministero and huzzahing in chorus just beneath my window they stopped and began to murmur al quirinale al quirinale the crowd surged a moment gently and then drifted to the quirinal where it scuffled harmlessly with half a dozen of the king's soldiers it ought to have been impressive for what was it strictly unless the seeds of revolution but its carriage was too gentle and its cries too musical to send the most timorous tourist to packing his trunk as i began with saying in rome in may everything has an amiable side even popular uprisings end of section 20